Today we've come to the end of this section about qualifications for elders and deacons. Um, we've talked about them at length uh, for quite a couple of weeks. And throughout all of these sermons about the qualifications, we have said all along that this is not a difficult passage. The, the ideas that are expressed here, the, the qualifications, the characteristics of men who uh, want to be elders and deacons, they're not hard to understand. They're not far out there uh, in terms of uh, degree of difficulty or, or degree of difficulty to comprehend what the Bible is saying. And yet, we've also said that this section is one of the most often ignored sections of Scripture by the church, or perhaps even worse, one of the most deliberately disobeyed sections of Scripture by many churches, even, as we were talking about this morning, Rod, Conservative, evangelical, Presbyterian, Reformed churches either ignore or maybe even worse, deliberately disobey this text. Now, some of the objections, some of the objections, some people will say, well, this is not a major doctrine. These are minor things. Uh, we were discussing this morning. Uh, this section does not strike at the vitals of religion. And we said how that phrase never appears in the Bible. Uh, but they discard, uh, uh, discard this section and don't obey it because they, they think it's a, it's a minor doctrine, not a, you know, not a major foundational thing. Well, we're going to look at how Scripture itself views this section. Other people object that Paul was really writing to one church, Timothy, in the church in Ephesus. And perhaps there were some disorganizations, some things going wrong in that church, disruptions in that church where Paul had to especially address that church specifically in that church alone about the problems localized in that church. So they'll say this is not a universal teaching for all churches, but just a specific teaching for, for one specific problem in a specific church. Or, another objection, some people will say, uh, this is Paul writing as an ancient man, stuck in his ancient times, stuck in his ancient uh, patriarchal, sexist times, and, and he could not help himself. And so it's not applicable today. The world has changed. We've changed. Culture has changed. And so when, especially when it comes to uh, elders and deacons being men, husbands of one wife, people will say, well, that's just Paul writing in his own time. It's not applicable today. Much has changed. The question we're going to ask today as we come to this conclusion, these concluding verses of this section, is what is Scripture's view of itself? What is Scripture's view of itself regarding these qualifications? Does Scripture indeed view these as minor non-vital parts of religion that are localized and temporal? Or does Scripture see them as something else? To talk about this, we'll talk about two main points. First, we'll look at how Scripture gives us a warning. And then we're going to look at how Scripture gives us encouragement 
So uh, today's sermon title, there's a warning and then there's an encouragement. But first, let's look at the warning. Verses 14 to 15. Let's read it again. The Bible says, these things I write to you. These things, meaning the things about the qualifications for elders and deacons. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves or conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In essence, Paul basically says, I hope to come to you soon, but in the meantime, this is how to conduct yourself in the church of God, in the house of God. But notice Paul doesn't simply just say that. He adds a couple of phrases here and there that, that indicate to us that there's a sense of emphasis. Okay, First, in verse 14, Paul doesn't just simply, or in verse 15, Paul doesn't just simply say, conduct yourself this way before I get here. He adds two little phrases. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. These are redundant phrases. He doesn't have to say them. He could have just said, I write so you know how to conduct yourself. But then instead of doing that, he, he adds these two possibly redundant phrases so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. I, I, I admit, you know, might seem like straining at gnats, but, but, the, but the emphasis really comes through in the original language. They, they, there are these phrases, where, where Paul, these two phrases that Paul throws in there. It doesn't have to be there, but he throws in there. And we know in scripture, whenever there's repetition, when there's, whenever there's redundancy, that it's there for emphasis. It's not a minor thing to be ignored. These qualifications are emphasized. Also, when Paul writes about this is how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, he doesn't just leave it there. He adds more modifying phrases. Again, maybe redundancies, maybe repetitions after it. He says, this is how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, dot, 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 which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when we come to that phrase, the church of the living God, uh, this is not a throwaway phrase. It's actually very descriptive. Uh, the way the English translates that word church, that, that word in the original language is ecclesia. We translate it as church, but that word is better translated as an assembly, a, a gathering, a, a congregation of people. So literally, Paul is saying the house of God is the assembling or the assembly or the congregation of God's people before the living God. When we put it like that, the immediate picture that should come to our minds is Israel during the Exodus when they were an assembly or a congregation before the living God. 
that this is why we read Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 describes the experience of Israel as they congregated, as they assembled before the living God. In Hebrews 12, as we read it, describes a terrifying, a terrifying ordeal for the people. Right? Because they could not endure what was commanded. Such that if God said, if a, even a beast touches the mountain, this was, they were congregated in front of God on Mount, before Mount Sinai. That even at, if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And even Moses was terrified. Moses who had to go up that mountain. Right? And Moses even said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. I want us to notice this about that Hebrews 12 passage. Of course, we know that Hebrews 12 passage. George, have you preached on this or taught on this? Are you getting there in your... Okay, okay, so you'll be getting there soon. <laughs> a lot of a lot of a lot of folks just get stuck on the comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that is a legitimate point in Hebrews 12, right? The old covenant where people uh assembled before the living God on Mount Sinai was a terrifying ordeal. And then by comparison, the new covenant the, the verse says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, and etc., etc. Meaning the new covenant is better, right? The first was earthly, the new is heavenly, the first was in terror, the new is in glory, okay? And that is true. The, the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, how God relates to us, that's all true. Except the conclusion is the same. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. And even when the folks, if they who if they did not escape who refused, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, meaning the old covenant, God held them accountable, even much so, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So there. Don't, don't, get just, don't get lost in just the theology of the comparison between the Old and the New Covenant. Okay, the, 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 the point of that passage is, yes, there is a difference between the Old and the New, between the earthly and the heavenly, and we belong in the heavenly Zion now. But the point the writer of Hebrews says is, the, 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 the onus on us, the burden on us to even pay more attention to God is even heavier in the New Covenant heavier in the new covenant because if those who ignored god in in the earthly covenant didn't escape much more so we will not escape in the new covenant it's heavier this is why we read second chronicles chapter 7 second chronicles chapter 7 uh, describes solomon finishing the temple and as we read, the glory of God filled the temple. Fire came down and the glory of God filled the temple such that the pre even the priest could not go inside. I want us to notice what the reaction of the people were as they assembled before the living God. What was the people's, what were the people's reaction? What was Solomon's reaction? Right, verse 3, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed 
their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forever. None of them thought, oh, this would be a good time for for me to stand up and say, God, uh, about this thing that you've uh, 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 taught us about your command, I take some exception to that because I don't think it strikes at the vitals of religion. No, that was not their response at that time. Uh, In fact, the reason why I had us read all the way down to verse 7 was, notice all the... After God came down in fire and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, Solomon sacrificed even more. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Now we know the purpose of the sacrifices. It's to atone for sin, right? And we know God doesn't need that many sacrifices. He he forgives us. uh, His forgiveness of Old Covenant Israel wasn't based on the number of sacrifices they did, right? It's based on his promise of a the perfect sacrifice, Christ, okay? So there was not, it was not necessary for Solomon to sacrifice all these things. But think about why Solomon sacrificed so much. He was probably trembling with fear when God met and assembled with his people, the living God. And so he sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed, even down to verse 7. Then he consecrated the middle of the court and what was around it. And even the, the, the altar that he had built wasn't enough to, to handle all of the sacrifices. That was the response. When we congregate and when we assemble in front of the living God, which is what this worship is, the proper response is of fear and trembling. And of saying to God, everything you say, we're going to do. That's not the time to bring up the God. Hey, uh, excuse me. I disagree with the idea that elders should only be men and deacons should only be men. Again, you know, these phrases that Paul throws in here, they're not just to give us a lesson on biblical theology or biblical history about you know, the church of the living God. It's not just to bring to remembrance, oh, this happened in the past. The reason it's here is to, to, to add emphasis to this, to this command, to these instructions about characteristics of qualifications of elders and deacons. It's to give us a warning, a stern warning. Basically, uh, to borrow the words of Hebrews 12, you know, don't ignore this. Don't ignore this because if they who ignored God on earth, uh, if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like uh, when Paul wrote these qualifications, he had in mind, well, these are minor things. These are local instructions. These are uh, you know, just for a while, temporary instructions. Sounds more like these are universal instructions, major instructions, vital to the religion, if I could use that phrase. I mean, that's the Bible's view of itself. 
for these qualifications. And so that's the warning. But then the Bible also gives us encouragement. I know that as we've talked about this section, we have often uh, come to the end of a sermon with the with this weight, feeling the weight of God's standard, right? Feeling the weight of His commandment, and then also seeing how far the gap is between His standard and our ability or inability to meet it. Um, and I think that's a very real thing. In fact, if we look at verse 16, Paul himself poses that very question that is on our very minds. Because Paul says in verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Basically, that's our that's one of our first human responses to a list of qualifications like this is Wow, God, your, your standard of godliness is so great. What a mystery it is for us to even try to comprehend it or reach it. But, in, but more than just posing the question, Paul, in the second part of verse 16, gives us an answer. So he poses the question, but then he answers it. He says, great is the mystery of godliness, but... God's given us an answer. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. What is the answer to this mystery of godliness? How does God answer this? Well, God answered it by sending his son. And we see in Jesus's character, in Jesus's, in who he is, what he did, you know, what he was like, we see in Jesus godliness, the definition of godliness. In other words, if we want to know what godliness is like, it's no mystery. Look at Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at his character. By contrast and comparison, there's another major religion uh, where you cannot say, if you want to figure out the mystery of godliness, look at the prophet and what he did and what he did to his enemies, what he did to his wives, what he did to children, that he made wives, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? You can't say that about other religions. But we can say that about Jesus. If you want to know what godliness is, he was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. We can look at Jesus. We can also look at God's word. Because Jesus was the word made flesh who dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and godliness, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's two sources for us if we want to know what the mystery of godliness is. Look at Christ, but also look at Scripture. 
which was, you know, Christ was the Word made flesh. So godliness is not a mystery to us. I mean, we talked about last time uh, the, the, the biblical idea of mystery, right? Uh, in the last sermon we said, we mentioned how our human view or our cultural view of mystery is that something is mysterious, mystical, far out there, transcendent, uh, you know, super spiritual, uh, you know, hard to hard to get. And that's actually uh, a huge economy in our uh, a huge driving point of our economy in today's world. This new age spirituality, where 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 people offer the idea of of some kind of higher knowledge or. or or higher transcendence, or higher form of being, but no one's really able to tell you how to get there or what it is like exactly. Okay, but it's that idea of mystery sells, right? That's why yoga and, and, and Eastern religions and New Age things are, are so popular today, even sometimes in church. But not so with us Christians, and not so with biblical mystery, because we said last time, Biblical mystery is always revealed mystery. It was hidden for a while, but God has now fully revealed it in Christ and in his son. No matter what the mystery is about. Uh, last week, we talked about the mystery of salvation, right? Well, that was a mystery that was hidden long ago that has been revealed to us in Christ in scripture. It's the same thing with this mystery of godliness. It's not such a mystery. It's revealed in Christ. It's revealed in scripture. And as we have said, uh, these qualifications are not difficult to understand. God tells us straight out what it means to be godly, right? In these qualifications. Not only does God reveal this to us, he also conforms us. Romans 8, 28 to 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So folks, God not only has revealed godliness to us in Christ, he not only teaches us godliness through his word, but God is conforming us to the image of his son Christ, meaning God is conforming us to godliness and not just some human form of godliness, but to Christ's godliness that he had in himself. Um, you don't get that from like a yoga class. You know, first, they don't teach you what higher transcendence is. It's very mystical. It's very spiritual. It's very far out there. Uh, they'll help you a little bit, but the goal is not clear. And they certainly don't work within you to conform you to it. There's no power, basically. You're on your own, blind, you know, feeling around in the dark. But not so with us, right? This is what we call progressive sanctification. Not only has God revealed it to us in Christ, not only does God teach us clearly and plainly in his word what godliness is, we are being conformed to that standard. We are being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That is encouragement. That is encouragement. 
you know, whenever we feel the weight, whenever we feel the weight of God's standard and where we are and how far short we, how, how far that gap is, one of the encouragements is God is working in us to conform us to that standard. There's one more encouragement. I don't want us to miss this. In verse 16, in the middle of that, some people say it's a poem, some people say it's a psalm, or like a song that they sang in the early church. I'm not sure, uh, you know, it's not conclusive what that is. Or it could just be that this was inspired by the Spirit in, uh, in Paul, right? But no matter where that is, in the middle of that uh, poem, in verse 16, the Bible says that Christ was justified in the Spirit. Just a brief explanation for that. what that means. When, when the Bible says Christ was justified in the Spirit, that's talking about His resurrection. Okay? Because Romans 1 talks about the same thing. Romans 1, uh, in, in, in introducing Christ, says that Jesus Christ was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Okay, so Romans 1 talks about Jesus being declared the Son of God in power by His resurrection, which was effectuated by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that, that, that gave the power. Uh, it's the Spirit of God that, that, that was the power that raised Christ from the dead. I mean, you can also think about uh, that vision to, to Ezekiel, the dry bones, and how they came to life. It was only until the Spirit of God came and gave them life that they rose from the dead. And so in verse 16, when it says Christ was justified in the spirit, that's a shorthand way of saying, talking about Christ's resurrection, okay? Christ's resurrection. But now think about what it means. Think about what it means that Jesus had to be justified in the spirit. Usually when we come across that word to be justified, it usually means to declare somebody innocent or acquit somebody of crimes or sins that they've done. But we also know that Christ didn't sin. He was sinless. So why does the Bible talk about his resurrection as that he was justified? Well, we know that Christ also took on our flesh. When he took on flesh, he took on our sins. As it says in Isaiah 53, our iniquities were laid upon him. And as it says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And so when our sin and our wages were laid upon Christ, that's why he had to die on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. Not for his transgressions, he had none. But he died on the cross because of our sins and our wages. Of sin which is death but we also know that Christ rose after three days now think about how or why Christ was able to raise from the dead because a sinner could never raise from death because the wages of sin is death and even if somebody else was carrying my sins if those sins and burdens were still on that person, they would not raise from the dead because the wages of sin is death. 
So how was Christ able to raise from the dead? The only reasoning is that all of the sins that were imputed on him, all of our sins, your and my sins, that he took on as a burden, he dealt with all of it. There was no more sin to be dealt with. He had satisfied all of our sins and the penalty of our sins on the cross. And so when he had dealt with all of that, there was nothing else left to hold him in the grave. So he could raise, be risen from the dead. And so that means whatever gap that we feel between God's standard and our inability to meet it, whatever sin, whatever inability we have to meet God's standard, uh, that's actually already been dealt with by Christ. Otherwise, he'd still be in the grave. Uh, I forget the name of that Roman mythological god who's having to push that rock up the hill, Sisyphus. And uh, he almost gets there and the rock falls back and he has to start over. No, Christ is not doing that still. He's not try still trying to deal with our sin and our burden. That was dealt with. Otherwise, he wouldn't have risen from the grave because the wages of sin is death. Christ being justified means Christ was justified for us. And him rising from the grave means our sin, our inability to meet God's standard and the sin that results from it and the punishment that results from it, that's actually already been dealt with. And so that is another encouragement. That is another encouragement. But I want us to get both. You know, both sides of this tension. Yes, God encourages us at the end. But, but the, the, the onus on us to, to keep these qualifications and to keep these commandments, they are still there. Right? It is not a minor thing. It is not a temporal thing. It is not a local thing. It's a universal and timeless teaching, a major part of our faith. In conclusion, uh, in a moment, we're going to read Psalm 26. I, I chose this psalm because I think it captures a lot of what we experience when we read a passage like this. Psalm 26 is written by a person that is trying to serve God in the house of God. Verse 6, he talks about going to the altar of the Lord. Verse 8, he talks about loving the habitation of his house. Verse 12, he talks about in the congregation, blessing the Lord in the congregation. So this is a guy who is trying to serve, you know, maybe be an officer in the church, serve the Lord in his house. This psalm talks about his struggle. He tries to walk in godliness, verses 1 to 3. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I've also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. He tries to avoid the wicked in verses 4 to 5. I try. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in the, with the hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. But you can tell it's a struggle, right? Because... If this was easy for the psalmist, he wouldn't write the psalm. He would just say, look, 
I'm trying to walk in my integrity. I've done a good job and eh, it's pretty easy going. Thank you, God. <laughs> that would be the Psalm, right? But it's here in, it, because this is a struggle between him wanting to do right, him wanting to walk in integrity and all of the temptations and sins and evildoers around him uh, trying to, 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 to make him stumble. And at the end, in verse 11, the last thing that the psalmist does is the last place he goes to, he finally has to just rely on the Lord's redemption and mercy. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be merciful to me. So when we are in that same struggle between, you know, I want to meet God's standard, I want to walk in integrity, but it's hard because we're weak. Where do we go? Where do we find our rest? We find our rest, we go to God's redemption and his mercy, right? We go to that encouragement that we talked about in today's verses. And it's only then that the psalmist is able to conclude in verse 12, my foot stands in an even place, no longer in a struggle, right? He, he's now in an even place. And in, in, in the congregation, I will bless the Lord. May God give us that ability. May God give us that grace um, as we struggle to, to walk in integrity, as we struggle to, to walk in godliness. May God give us not only that grace that conforms, is conforming us to the image of his son, but give us that grace where we can say, Lord, I rely on you. I rely on what you've done for me, your salvation, your redemption. And I rely on your mercy so that I can now stand in an even place, even as I serve you in your church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the conclusion of this passage. Um, thank you for the, the, the stark warning and the burden that's laid very clearly on us. And we do pray for the church overall, for ourselves and the church overall, that, that, that more people would, would understand the seriousness of, of these qualifications, that they're not throwaway passages, they're not minor teachings that, that we can just, oh, you know, uh, uh, ignore whenever we like because there's a, you know, there's a person, there's a female uh, elder or deacon that we'd like to ordain. Father, help us. Help us to take this, these uh, qualifications as seriously as you intended it. But even as we do, Lord, uh, give us grace. Remind us of your love for us. Remind us of your mercy for us. Remind us of what you have already done for us in regards to our sin and what you are doing to us right now in regards to conforming us to the image of a son, of your son. Lord, I do pray for uh, our little church that you would raise up men uh, to be future elders and future deacons. That is a need in our church. We pray for our current elders that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son that we would day by day be more and more and even more qualified to serve in your house. But Father, we, we pray for your provision for, for all of us uh, and for our church especially. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.